I've said that as an entertainer, all the success in this world is not going to heal you. Apatow replied, it, meaning success, doesn't do anything. There's a great distraction in thinking when I get to the top of the hill, it's all going to be awesome. And then when you get to the top of the hill, you're like, oh, I guess now I have to really deal with my problems because that didn't work at all. So what is success to you? How would you define a successful life? It's a fair question. Certainly not here to make people feel guilty. We can enjoy our material possessions. We can enjoy career accomplishments. Those are things that can certainly be celebrated. But is that the epitome of success? I'd like to challenge our concept of success within a biblical framework. Joshua 1.8 is a great place to start. It says this, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you'll make your way prosperous. Then you'll have good success. Knowing God's word, obeying it, following it, that would probably need to be on our list of what success looks like for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Nehemiah seemed to have some of these concepts flowing through his veins when he prayed his prayer in chapter 1. He said in verse 11, O Lord, give success to your servant today. I doubt at that moment Nehemiah was thinking, I hope I win my fantasy football division. That's what I'm after. It was more than the numbers. And any serious-minded Christian, I think, intuitively understands that, that success has got to be more than just the stuff. We know that. In that prayer that Nehemiah says in verse 5, he also says this, that he recognizes that God is a God who keeps his covenants. And then he confesses his sin and his own people's sin to God. It seems that there was something that, that ran deeper here that, that Nehemiah was after than just fixing a wall. And Nehemiah was reminding God, I sure hope that you're going to keep your promise. I sure hope you're going to keep your covenant with your people. And he talks about their obedience and their disobedience, and that's why he had the confession. And one gets the impression that really building a wall was just an excuse for God to do something greater. If nothing else was written about Nehemiah, and if we knew nothing else other than he built a wall, that was all he did, would he be considered a success? I doubt that Nehemiah would think so. It's certainly significant. I mean, you look at all the opposition and all it took to get the wall built, and certainly we could even call it miraculous. It's a great thing. But interwoven with this wall being built are a lot of other stories within Nehemiah that talk about handling opposition, prayer, money, worship, sacrifice, personal holiness, business, even family and marriage are discussed in this book. It seems God was doing something greater in the process than just putting some bricks together. 
The wall was a conduit for God's work. And maybe recognizing God's work in our life is an important factor in us enduring in the Christian life. Now, our stories might be a little different than what Nehemiah wrote. For us to recognize God's work in our life, we may start our stories with something like, well, when uh, I lost my job or when the doctor said the test is positive, I do have cancer, or when my marriage tanked for that season, and then we follow that up with, and this is what God did. This is what God taught me. This is what God did in my heart. See, God is always doing something greater than what the immediate context shows. And it always involves something that's going on on the inside, transforming our hearts, our character. This whole book, like our lives, demonstrates that God is still working in his people. And we saw last week that God mobilized his people through the leadership of Nehemiah and how he used prayer, how he used people not being distracted but dedicated to the task at hand. And in whatever endeavor that he gives us to influence people, we also see, and we're going to check this out today, that we have to define the places that we will not go. Define the places that you will not go. Every leader, every parent, every spouse, every friend, every boss, every spiritual leader is to have a set of convictions, right? Boundaries that they refuse to pass. A conviction is a predetermined boundary you will not cross. Now, I'm not interested in setting up some extra law. What we're really doing is talking about calling out from from biblical principle, ways of application, therefore convictions that we have. But some people feel like, you know what, I really don't need to set these boundaries, these kinds of convictions. I just, I'm led by the Spirit. Yeah, I just kind of fly by the seat of my pants. When I get to the situation, I'm going to know there's no need for me to set up any kind of boundaries or convictions. Here's the problem with that. We usually exaggerate our own strength and we diminish the power of temptation. One thing we know for sure, Nehemiah did not underestimate his enemy. We read in Nehemiah 4.9, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. There was a boundary. He set up a guard to protect his people. And then we read in Nehemiah 4.14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. Fight for your homes. Here I draw the line. You do too much here. You cannot cross this. This is going to happen. You fight. A conviction is not just about ourselves. It's not about just assuaging our conscience. A conviction is about others. It's about our influence with others. 
And when someone compromises a clear biblical mandate, they don't just negatively impact themselves. They cannot control the ripples of how that influences other lives as well. I talked to one man who said that he felt like he could live life on his own. He didn't need all the spiritual stuff. He didn't need the church. Claimed to know God, but he didn't need other people. He could do it on his own. He was strong enough, he said, to live a moral life on his own. Until he found out he wasn't. And he had an affair. And imagine the impact upon his wife, his children. Compromise rarely starts with the big ask. It usually starts with a slow burn. And people can find of one of two things in their leaders, home, work, church, government, find one of two things, either compromise or conviction. Now listen, there's a good kind of compromise, isn't there? I mean, sometimes you got to change the program. you got to change your strategy. you got to change the way perhaps you're, you're dealing with people. Uh, that's good to change plans. But what I'm talking about, uh, the things not to compromise, are core principles, moral values, those things consistent with a biblical worldview. See, when we compromise, trust will erode and our influence will wane. Trust is the interest that we earn from a life lived out of conviction. Listen to this story. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent, could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Nehemiah says, no more. Quit this. You are, <laughs> you, you are committing an injustice with this exorbitant interest upon people who are your family members, who are your friends, who are your people, and it's unjust. Stop it. And as a leader, he stood before them and drew a line. But many leaders don't have the stomach for convictions. They refuse to set up moral boundaries that the Bible clearly defines in the face of a relativistic culture. I heard one pastor of a very large church in another city who told a friend of mine, I will not speak against abortion because I know with the young crowd that we have, they'll be turned off. We want them to hear the gospel. We're not going to let politics get in the way. We're not going to speak to such things like that. Wow. That's an interesting take. 
the tag of being unloving or intolerant from this culture is a greater threat to some than the fear of God. And that's a sad state. There's an interesting story about Nehemiah in the last chapter of this book. And I don't know if we should take this as an example to follow, to be honest with you. I think in a general principle of things that we can fight for, it's good. But the specifics of what Nehemiah does, I certainly can't recommend. You'll see what I'm talking about. In those days, also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of uh, each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat them and pulled out their hair. (laughs) Wow. You say, that sounds like some meetings I've been in, all right? And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to your sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And then notice in verse 27, Nehemiah calls this a great evil against our God. You were desecrating marriage. Desecrating God in marriage, how is that? Because God instituted that. And that's an offense. Now, mind you, he's talking with his people, all right? These are his brothers and sisters. He's not going out in the general populace and grabbing people and pulling their hair. These are people that were in the fold of a family of faith. I wouldn't suggest hair pulling. But there is something to be said for a leader who will fight for his marriage and marriages and biblical principles, something God-given, God-ordained between a man and a woman. And there is something wimpish for a spiritual leader who will not. Contrast Nehemiah with Aaron in Exodus 22. Moses is up on the mountain giving directions from God. And Aaron is left with the task of leading the people of Israel as Moses is gone. And we read this, that when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I mean, is the human heart that desperate for somebody to lead them that, you know, they're gone for a little bit and I'm going to start making idols? And the people are demanding Aaron, who was to lead them, to join with them in the sin to make an idol. And I ask you, it causes me to consider this, and I don't think this is too far of a stretch. Are there organizations we're with that maybe tempt leaders to sin? Can a church tempt a pastor to sin? Can a workplace tempt a boss 
to sin? Can a family point a spiritual leader towards sin? Anytime we opt for an idol, moving our dependence away from God, we tempt others, even those given the task to lead us. There is a mutual responsibility. We're never to think that the leader is immune to the sin of others. You look at the way some organizations treat their leaders. They tempt them. Check out the response of Moses, though. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, or Aaron had let them break loose, now, check the, the, the words are important in the scripture, right? God is holding Aaron at least partially responsible as a leader for this idol worship. Instead of standing in the gap and saying, no, you won't, he failed. Now, the people were responsible as well, but he's holding Aaron responsible. You need to think of that, dads, as you look at your home. You need to think of that boss as you look at the workplace environment and accept the responsibility that, you know what, the buck stops with me. That I can exert some influence to improve this situation. And I got to quit blaming everything else and do what I can. But this is what it says. For Aaron had them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gap of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Who is on the Lord's side? Now look, he's not talking here about, you know, a building program, the color of the carpet in the tabernacle. All right. We are talking about moral principles. We're talking about, in this case, idol worship. Clearly defined, clear biblical parameter. And leaders sometimes, listen, have to take a stand and take the hits no matter what comes your way from holding to a conviction. Right? Listen, parents, you are not always going to be loved and respected as a parent. Does that mean, therefore, since my kids didn't do their job, then I don't have to do mine? No. It is not your job primarily to be your child's best friend. It's your job to continue to be a parent and to guide and to protect, even though they may not like it in that moment. We compromise when we alter the word of God, particularly spiritual leaders, to fit the culture. We compromise when the gospel and discipleship are replaced by politically correct or politically progressive ideologies of love and tolerance. And by the way, since I brought up marriage, let me just, as an aside, kind of get this out of the way. Uh, I've talked about it before, but if you're new here, you're probably hearing this as a rant. 
against gay marriage. And while we have a biblical mandate of a marriage between a man and a wife, what I don't hold to is some of the derision and much of the hate-filled speech that goes towards the gay community and our fellow human beings who struggle with sexual sin. There's a myriad of reasons as to why that is that comes from some of the Christian community, not everybody. But I want to make a clear delineation between a, a loving biblical standard that we can hold up and then the decrying of culture going to hell in a handbasket, you know, and blaming the gay community for all of that or uh, refusing to relate to people that are gay. These are the kinds of things that cannot be in our midst. So that aside, we compromise in a myriad of ways. We compromise, for instance, when we fail to challenge those in power. And instead, we try to hold on to power. We compromise when we allow race to define our parameters instead of love and grace of the gospel. That includes blacks. That includes Syrians or whatever other race that you want to put in there. We compromise when we do anything to grow a church and fail to call believers to the mandates of discipleship. We compromise when we fail to help the poor and think that the American dream is a right and equal to our calling as Christians. We compromise when we offer an excuse for our disobedience and deny the clear proclamation of the word of God. You see, parents, spouses can compromise if they fail to address the issues that are causing the family unit to be unhealthy. Bosses compromise when they they fail to confront bad behavior just to keep the peace, or maybe, you know, they're willing just to lie so they don't get themselves in a pickle. You see, if you want to mobilize others, you have to start with conviction. You have to start with things that you refuse to compromise on. And again, I'm not talking about extracurricular subcultural codes that some Christian denominations and sects have. What I'm talking about are clear biblical mandates. Our next way to mobilize people to do great things is to develop and utilize every person. I love Nehemiah 3 because this chapter mentions people by name, mentions the section upon which they were helping with the wall and the particular jobs that they were doing on the wall. It's really, I don't have time to read the whole chapter, but trust me, it's there. Verse 3, for instance, says that the, the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate and they laid its beams and doors. Verse 12, for instance, speaks of Shalom and his daughters who were making repairs. 
there were skilled carpenters. There were people doing some of the heavy, uh, heavy lifting. There were goldsmiths and merchants that were talked about here doing what they could to accomplish the mission. My favorite part, though, in this chapter is verse 14, where it says, Malkajah repaired the dung gate. So on lunch break, when everybody is gathered around having lunch, hey, Mal, what are you guys working on? The crap gate. (laughs) And you know what? It's an important job. There's no derision in that. It's just listed among all the others. I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to work on whatever gate is there because that's what it's going to take to get the job done. 14 times in this chapter, it says next to him and next to them. In other words, the work was done together. Diverse groups of people from different cities, different families, different vocations all joined in. I really don't think that Nehemiah got on the top of a hill next to Jerusalem and started yelling, okay, everybody spread out and find something to do. No, there was a plan. Uh, In fact, there were instances where people worked on a section of wall that was nearest their home. Uh, Other people were grouped according to their vocational ability. The point is, is that each person or group was carefully selected to take a section of the wall based on either proximity or their skill. And then Nehemiah defined, and probably him along with other managers that he had, defined and delegated what others could do to accomplish the mission. And all these people were in. Listen, this kind of delegation, all this planning, it doesn't happen without intentionality and without relationship. It had to have relationship to know what these people were good at. And I love that Nehemiah gives recognition by naming these people and the particular task that they did, right down to putting on hinges on the doors. It shows that he he shared the credit for the work that was done and that each participant was valuable. Whether it's mobilizing a family, a church, or a team at work, listen, encouragement and recognition, it goes a long way, does it not? And motivating, encouraging people. You know, a person could be a real technician in management, maybe even having their degree in it, their MBA, but they fall flat in leadership. Why? Because that relational aspect, that encouragement is lacking. People have a difficult time following somebody they sense does not care about them. And leaders, listen, we all have to find that God-given reservoir that feeds our soul so that we can do the task. Like I mentioned Where are you going to go when the parent is in there in the middle of parenting and you get resistance? You're going to just give up? What are you going to do at that point? Where does a a married person go when they love and the other person doesn't love back? Where do you go? There are situations where leaders are not up to the task because they use people to feed their ego needs And they give up for a lack of feeding from eternal waters. Their cup is not filled. They're run out. So all these conflicts that are 
before me, as I lead, I don't have what it takes. Expectations aren't met. Disappointment sets in. Where do I go with all this leadership angst? It's why spouses quit a marriage because they don't get back the love they deserve. It's why people leave a job feeling disappointed. It's why the average pastor leaves a church or a church, you know, dumps a pastor. The average, three years. Expectations aren't met. And like Aaron and the Israelites, leaders and followers who are desperate, they end up making idols. And then when the idols fail them, they just start the cycle over again because they refuse to go to that eternal reservoir in Christ to fill them up. See, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, whatever situation you're in, whether it's family, church, work, school, it's incumbent upon us to stay healthy, to stay intimate with God, to find our satisfaction in Christ, to find those core needs of security and love in Christ in the midst of all the other disappointments that surround us because there are a plenty, are there not? And I hear others say, well, you know what? You just can't have any expectations of others. Well, you know, it's really hard to run an organization when you don't have expectations, all right? But constantly moving the target by not having expectations or maybe not even having a target, all right? That's certainly not going to fit the bill. That's not going to fill your heart. Listen. Nehemiah, chapter 3, lists all these people. What's your list look like? Uh, We could probably easily come out with a complaint list of all the people that have disappointed us. That would be easy. How about a list of people that we recognize and thank, particularly if you're in a position of influence? Dads, when's the last time you have communicated the thanks for those in your family and all that they do? Bosses? How about taking this as an opportunity to thank those around you? Just simple thanks. And, and be specific in that. Uh, here's a list you do not want to make, by the way. Nehemiah 3.5. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. <laughs> really? I love how Nehemiah does not mince the words. I mean, it seems like every organization has its malcontents. Some people are just too big to serve, right? I mean, you have a variety of excuses. My position doesn't say I have to do that. I'm not going to serve. You know, I served years ago, but now's my time, right? The leadership is not what it should be. I'm not serving. I don't have time to serve, Or I like this one, I don't have the desire for serve, and I feel like I can't do it wholeheartedly, like that's to be respected. So you stay with the crappy attitude for five years, that's the respected position? How about get your heart right, and then you can serve? I mean, what a contrast of here in verse 5, I will not stoop to serve the Lord, and then an entire chapter of all these people that have been all in. 
And you know what, honestly? You know what my experience has been here at Christ Community? And I praise you in this. I think most people are looking for something to do. You always have problems. But that's the minority. The majority are people, hey, how can I help? What can I do? And it's a blessing to be a part of an organization like that. Here's the problem, though, is that when you have malcontents in any organization, just like here, they're right next to you at the wall. They might even be a family member. <laughs> what do you do then, right? And it, it, it can be discouraging. I mean, how can you operate when you've got somebody right next to you who has a crummy attitude? Oh, we have to get back. Let your heart be filled. And what I think of here. I think of somebody else who has a list. God has a list. And God has your name on it. And he says, uh, yeah, I, I see Jared. I see Corey. I, I see Ben. I see John. I see Gary. I see Derek. I see Kathy. I see Val. I see Eric. I see Abby. I see Janet. I see what you've done. I I am so proud of you. I am so glad for the work that you have done. And God is applauding in heaven. You know who else is? There's a cloud of witnesses that are cheering you on, saying, great job. Keep at it. And not only does he see the work, you know what else he sees? He sees the intent of your heart. And that God rewards too. Because sometimes you want to do good, you do something, and it doesn't turn out right. You ever had that? People misinterpret your motives, right? That happens all the time, does it not? But God, I think, will reward even that because he knows your heart. So you have a God, a Father, who loves to give gifts to his children, loves to recognize. And if you'll just take the time and listen to the sweetness of his voice in you each and every day to communicate to you via his word, via his spirit, what he thinks of you, that he loves you, he cares for you, then you know what? When I get those disappointments during the day, it doesn't rock me. I'm not saying it doesn't affect you, but it doesn't knock me out of the game, right? Because that's the reservoir. So what's God calling you to do today? Grab a brick. Get a place on the wall. And let's stay at the task. Let's pray.